0: Sega Bits presents Sega Talk, a podcast talking all things Sega. with your hosts, George and Barry. Look, it's a giant talking egg. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the man. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Sega Talk. I'm Barry with me is George. Hello everyone. I'm the the Sith to your light uh, your Jedi. Yeah, you're the Sith to my Jedi. You're my Force Ghost. Yes. Um boy, what are we going to talk about today, George? Well, we're going to be talking about Star Wars. And why did I pick Star Wars? I don't know. I th- at first I picked this cuz I thought this will be easy. This will go fast. And then I started doing the notes and it was like six pages of notes. So, you know, six pages. It's probably going to be like an hour show. We'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't need to go into the history of Star Wars. It's baked into pop culture and modern movie history. Um, basically, if you don't know what Star Wars is, you've probably been in a coma since 1976. Or you're one of those people who are like, have you, I don't know you encountered these people. Maybe not just with Star Wars, but they, like go out of their way to tell you they haven't seen it and they're like proud of it
1: yeah like uh i don't know what you're talking about yeah no i've, I've heard these but it's also like the, the, there's also the opposite of that where like right people are pretending like they're so like underground or like something like special about them for liking star wars which is like a mainstream <laughs> movie and that's that there's also that
0: right oh yeah yeah well you get there's like a big youtuber presence now where they're like i'm kind of a geek and i'm like you're not a geek star wars is mainstream yeah this isn't an underground thing like it's you probably have more people who know about like star wars than like local sports teams you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, i mean there's a reason why like baseball uses star wars to bring people in because i think it has you know it has uh, a huge draw but You know, Star Wars was a mega hit film. There's several forms of multimedia and we're going to be talking about video games today. So before we get into video games, I just wanted to briefly touch on our own histories with Star Wars. Um, So George, do you like, do you remember the first time you saw it, which film it was, was it in the theaters, VHS? uh when i was a kid my
1: mom like hated star wars so she never let me (laughs) rent it or anything she was saying they were like boring movies she didn't understand them i mean when you like barely know english and stuff and don't know like and you're really like more into like mexican like uh soap operas basically where like every episode Mm. they have to go oh no and somebody has to get pregnant and there's a cheating or something every 10 minutes um Star right. Wars is a little, you know, a little slower burn, so I remember I I, guess, ha- yeah. I had to, like, sneak in and or, uh, buy it myself because I thought it was amazing when those, like, re-release VHS covers where they had, like, the lightsaber showing, you know, they had the green lightsaber with Luke or whatever, and they, they, they did those covers, I don't know if you remember those, where they were, like, darker... I, I,
0: I think I, is it like the faces? Is it something like that?
1: It, it wasn't the faces. It was like it, it was like the re-release ones, and they had like the fighting where they showed the lightsabers glowing, and then like I think was a, there was there might have been a face on it. I don't remember it okay. like vividly, but I remember like being super impressed by the lightsabers, and I had to mm. watch it. I'm like, how can it be boring? There's got there's glowing <laughs> swords on the cover, and right, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought they were good movies at the time. Uh, I know there's a lot of like controversy with every single Star Wars movie, but at the time I I really enjoyed them. I don't think there was anything I've seen that was quite like it. So it was pretty interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know that's that's funny because like as Sega fans, you can't really escape Star Wars because Fantasy Star Online really draws a lot of inspiration from it. I mean they have lightsabers and double bladed lightsabers in the games. Um You've got Sonic himself ripping off Star Wars with the Death Egg, mm. um, and, you know, some would even argue, like, Knack the Weasel or is like Boba Fett, basically. Like, they threw a bounty hunter into a Sonic game. Yeah. Clearly, they're ripping off Star Wars. And then uh, Ken Penders himself, Mr. Archie Comics, you know, would straight lift, like, plots from Star Wars, and... Uh, Eggman, or not Eggman, uh, Robotnik in the uh, Saturday morning cartoons was really basically Darth Vader. So, you know, it's... it's Star Wars had a huge impact on pop culture and definitely bled into Sega video games. Um, as for my own history with Star Wars, it was just kind of always like one of the VHS tapes we had. So, you know, I had the first three. They were tapes from probably the 80s. My dad picked them up. Um other movies I'd watch at the time were like uh, Indiana Jones and the last crusade, Batman, Dick Tracy, Jurassic park. So, you know, like as, as time went on, my little video library grew to like a dozen movies I would watch again and again. And then it was really like 1997 when they came back to the theaters. And I'm like, you know, like this doesn't happen that often. I mean, Disney would do re-releases of their animated movies, but it was rare to see something like star Wars come back to theaters. And when it did, it had like, new scenes and I was like really excited to see new stuff that wasn't on the tapes. Plus it was widescreen and I was not seeing widescreen until the theaters. So I'd see new details on the edges. And honestly, like from there it just became like, I I became hyper aware that there are three things that I was really into. It was on TV. I loved the Simpsons on video games. I loved Sega and Sonic. And then in movies, I loved star Wars. And so I was like, well, it has to be S, 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 you know, like, (laughs) um, so I was like, well, it works like S I like S things. And as time went on, like, you know, you can't see it really behind me here. I have the Sonic collectibles here. If you look at past shows, I had my Star Wars stuff behind me, but now it's actually the Star Wars stuff is in front of me. So I moved, I put this like Darth Vader, (laughs) uh, VHS standee from the special editions behind me, but like, it's just. I don't know, like, when I'm not doing Sega stuff, I'm probably doing Star Wars stuff. And it's just... It's been a lot of fun, both as an entertainment thing and, honestly, like, as a social thing. Like, I socialize with a lot of people online about Sega stuff, but in person, increasingly, I've been hanging out with people who I met through, like, Star Wars podcasts and um, through the events that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, back in 2007 when I was working a desk job, I started listening to podcasts and I would listen to this one called the force cast. And the hosts of that included this one guy who would occasionally go on named Jimmy Mack. And he was from Chicago. So, you know, me going, I went to school in Chicago, moved to Philadelphia. So at this time it was kind of nice to hear a Chicago voice again. And I, I honestly just loved the show. I loved the dynamics. It was like a professionally done show, but it still had personality to it um and as time went on i would just keep listening to it and then when i moved back to chicago like i never like planned to like reach out to the hosts of the show i just thought that would be a little weird but like i I don't know how it actually happened but like it was just kind of like i i think it's through patreon so it was like through their patreon they were talking about you know, going to the Galloping Ghost. And so I messaged uh, uh, Jimmy, who hosted the show for like, uh, like f- almost 14 years up to that point. Uh, their new show was Rebel Force Radio. And I was like, do you want to go to the arcade and see this new Star Wars arcade machine? And it was like, yeah, sure. So we went there and we hung out and we'd been going back there up to the pandemic like every few months. And then because of the um, big Star Wars event that happened in Chicago, more guys start going. And now we have like a little crew and I'm like contributing to their podcast, like on their on their Patreon. I'm on a show called the Babu Freaks where it's like uh, <laughs> <Babu> basically. <Freaks. laughs> well, that's the name of our <laughs> trivia team. So we did a uh, trivia night before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, we started doing Zoom hangouts. And then we were like, well, let's record these and put them up there. And so like, it's just kind of insane that over the course of 14 years, I went from being a listener to the show to kind of being involved and like being friends with the guys and thinking about, I was thinking about earlier today, I'm like the equivalent would be like if one of our Patreon like listeners or podcast listeners right now reached out to me in 14 years and I was like, yeah, you can start doing podcasts with George and I, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. that's weird. It's, that's, that's pretty wild. So... Yeah, I mean, I I, it's, I it's, know it's a long story, but I just I wanted to touch on that just because I think it's kind of I just think it's kind of wild that like I've gone from doing Sega podcasts to now like hanging out with the uh, the people I used to listen to. And now we're just like friends. They're just like guys I know. Um, and I think that's kind of what's uh, caused me to want to do this, because <laughs> I thought hey, I could bring it up on those podcasts and then bring in some new listeners for us. So, you know, I mean, I am a weasel. Remember, I was called a weasel 10 years ago for for weaseling into the Sega Bits uh, website and podcasts. I'm pretty sure it was
1: was called Snake, not Weasel. Maybe Weasel. (laughs) I don't know.
0: I think I was called a snake and a weasel. I like being a weasel more than a snake. Same. I mean neck the weasel's pretty cool but uh, yeah. anyway yeah so that, that's my long story but diving into the video games now my favorite Star Wars video games honestly I love 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 dark forces I think it's one of my favorite games just in general um, is that it's w- basically it's a, it's it? like a doom clone basically yeah yeah okay I did play that one mm. that, Yeah and if you've seen Rogue One where they spend the whole movie trying to steal the Death Star plans, the opening like minutes of Dark Forces, you just enter a room and you find the plans. It's so anticlimactic. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you know, it's it's like it's Star Wars video games. I mean, I think they're all. There's a lot of quirky ones. There's a lot of great ones. And honestly, I think the ones we're covering today are like some of the best um, out there. But not many people have played them because they're really locked into the arcades, and these machines are dying. You're not playing them anymore unless you're uh, really just, like, emulating them. Um, But talking about, like, how Star Wars video games began. So George Lucas, he was incredibly innovative, both in filmmaking and with just, like, merchandising and marketing and utilizing his uh, license. Um, So he actually, he founded an internal video game development team as early as May 1982, which was kind of rare. Like, it's you didn't really see film studios doing that until much later, like Warner Brothers Games and uh, Fox Interactive. Um, And this operated alongside his film company. And it wasn't until 1990 that a reorganization led to the game development group being rebranded as LucasArts. And in these early years, LucasArts fast became known for adventure games running on their own engine named SCUM, which stood for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. So if you can guess... The, game, the, the engine was developed for Maniac Mansion, kind of like you know, like Dragon Engine was made for Yakuza, but then we see it uh, in games like Virtua Fighter V, uh, Ultimate Showdown. Um, and what I really liked about this era was that these games like Maniac Mansion, Monkey Island, uh, which had a release on the Sega CD with Secret of Monkey Island, and even some Indiana Jones games, it, it allowed LucasArts to make their own identity and not just become like the Star Wars game studio. Kind of like they are today. Like, yeah. if, if a Lucasfilm game comes out, it's going to be Star Wars, which is kind of like a shame because, you know, the in those early years at LucasArts, they had people like Brian Moriarty, Tim Schaefer, Ron Gilbert, uh, Dave Crossman. I think um, Ron Gilbert, especially, is like huge now. Um, yeah. He's still making great games. So, have you ever played any of these early LucasArts adventure games? And, uh, I guess point-and-click games, and and speaking of that, too, um, how do you think Sega's game The Cave, which was actually produced with Ron Gilbert's uh, Double Fine Studio, kind of compared to those games? Do you think it, it stood up to those? Or I mean, I don't okay, know, so... It, it, the Cave came and went. We're going to talk about The Cave, I feel okay. like, on a future Sega talk.
1: Okay, well, yeah, but, I actually reviewed The Cave for the site, so I kind of remember it yeah. semi-vividly, you know, hazy memories sometimes um right it was just like a bunch of mini stories of like a, f- a few characters and i thought it was going to be even more epic considering who he is but the story was just i gave it like a c plus c i thought like mm-hmm. th- for being who he was and stuff it, I, you know maybe i had too high of expectations it wasn't terrible it was just a good game i would say um as far as right. lucas arts games i played in the in the in the past uh, Monkey Island, but, like, I, I hardly remember it. I know they've been doing, like, mm-hmm. all these re-releases, and I was thinking about picking them up, but you know how it is. Limited Run Games has so much so much stuff back-to-back that you're like, oh, I, I wish <laughs> I had money for that, but I just spent right. $400 on some other
0: item. But, uh, but you can get them on Steam. You can get them, like, for, like, oh, nothing on Steam.
1: I'll probably pick them up on Steam. Did, and so, um, yeah. what's your... I actually kind of thought it was interesting that LucasArts had all these like franchises they made in the past. Because I never played these when they came out. So I played mm-hmm. them way later. And I always thought the same thing as you said, right? They only make Star Wars games. Because like, growing up, there's so many Star Wars games. And so the fact that they made their right. own IPs, it was pretty interesting. I thought that was cool. I wish they would do more of that. I think there's like a, still a market for uh, Adventures of Monkey Island. Because you could tell there's a lot of fans oh, yeah. online. Yeah.
0: But yeah, absolutely. Wh- yeah. Your history? Um I I mean growing up um at the time when these games were coming out, they felt advanced to me, so I never really checked them out. Plus they were on PC. I was more of like a Sega cartridge kid, so honestly a lot of them passed me by until later. I did play Secret of Monkey Island for iPhone mm-hmm. <laughs> of all things. And it's a great game. It's really funny. Um, it's really self aware. There's lots of in jokes. And so when The Cave was announced, which I was really excited for because it seemed like it was reviving the LucasArts point and click adventure thing. And the idea that Sega would be the one publishing it, I was hoping maybe like we would get a platinum Games sort of deal where we would, it would kind of become a pillar of Sega at the time and be like, oh, they're making a new Monkey Island. And. You know, Sega's doing it now, or something like that. But it just kind of all fall, fell flat. I, I think I've told the story before, but we did a giveaway for the cave where it was like little figurines of all the characters. And they sent me the set. They sent me one set. And their idea was for me to send the set to a winner. And I was like, why don't you just send it to the winner? You didn't give me anything. <laughs> like, yeah. What a waste. Like, I have to pay... You paid shipping to send me something that I need to pay shipping to send to someone else. And you don't even send me a second one as incentive to, like, be excited about it. Like, way to go. What a waste. <laughs> um, so that's... I'm, I'm kind of salty about the cave because of that. But there is a connection, I believe, that one of the voice actors from the cave is a pretty major Star Wars voice actor now. I don't want to get the name wrong. I think it's Stephen Stanton who worked on it. And he does um, uh, He does stuff for The Bad Batch now and Clone Wars. So, mm. I mean, there's a little link there. Um, now, talking more about the Star Wars video games, the early 90s saw the rise of Star Wars games. And I thought this was interesting. I couldn't find any more information outside of a little Wikipedia mention, but... This is in part because Lucasfilm had actually regained control of the license, which had been in use prior by companies like Atari and Namco, which kind of explains why in the 80s and early 90s you didn't see LucasArts themselves releasing Star Wars games. They had to basically work with companies that had the license, and I'm assuming Atari was a big one. So uh, because there's no ads for the Sega games, I thought it would be fun to watch an Atari had, um, so if you want to fire that up, this thing is so good, right? <laughs> good, yeah. It's something. <laughs> um,
1: let me go put it in the beginning. All right, let me put up the volume so we can hear it
0: up. Yeah. Star Wars. Star Wars. I like his shirt. Use the force. <laughs> Going in. <laughs> wow, this game
1: <laughs> Some game, <huh>? Some game. <laughs> In a galaxy of video games there
0: is only one. Star
1: Wars, the arcade He sold it better to me than Luke Luke did in the next in the actual movie, dude.
0: <laughs> I wanna do an edit where I just overlay that guy's audio when Luke's going through the trench and he's yeah. like Here we go! Ah! but um yeah, so that that was the Atari port of the Atari arcade game, which was called Star Wars in the arcade, and then it was on the Atari 2600, it was called Star Wars The Arcade Game. And so it gets a little confusing when we're yes. talking about Star Wars Arcade, but not Star Wars The Arcade Game. Um, uh, as I mentioned um you know, this worked out for Lucas Arts as the adventure game genre became less popular. So we did see stuff like Wolfenstein and Doom and Flight Sims and licensed adventure games becoming popular, and in turn, uh, Lucas Arts would emulate these and sometimes like do better than the games that they were um, emulating, like. For example, I honestly think Dark Forces is a better game than uh, Wolfenstein 3D, though it's not as good as Doom. Mm. Um, TIE Fighter is often seen as one of the best like f- spaceship flight sim games. And then, of course, there's the SNES Super Star Wars games, which I'm still salty about Sega fans never getting, because quite honestly, the the Genesis and Mega Drive doesn't have any Star Wars games, which is just a real shame. Um I think the Sega CD has uh, Star Wars Chess and uh, Rebel Assault. Like, it's not that exciting for Sega fans at this time. Um, Did you play any of these games, like the Super Star Wars games? And how do you think they compare to the games they were inspired by?
1: uh, Well, I did play the Super Star Wars games. They definitely Mm -hmm. took a lot of liberties, obviously, (laughs) to make them uh, Mm -hmm. basically like... I don't know what they were trying to do, like... Sort of like Contra, but like you have a sword and everything, everything around you hits you and they're just, I wouldn't say they're the best design game, but they look really, really cool when you're like, oh my God, like there's the animation and being (laughs) able to be a Jedi like that. It was pretty sick at the time. Uh, Somebody had it in my neighborhood, one of them. I don't know which one, Uh, but I remember Mm -hmm. thinking it looked really cool. But then when I played it, I'm like, this game is cheap, hard, like super cheap, hard. Um... (laughs) But it they did look super cool, and yeah, it is weird that they never made like a Castlevania-type version of that on the uh, Mega Drive. Because, I mean, we at least had Castlevania, you know, Bloodlines and all these really cool games. It would have been cool to have a Star Wars equivalent.
0: It must have been an exclusive. Like, Nintendo probably had some sort of deal with them saying you cannot put anything on, like, Genesis. And so their workaround were, like, ports... To the Sega CD. But yeah, yeah, the Super Star Wars games, they were pretty cool. Uh, a little unforgiving. I I do like how in the Mandalorian show, they kind of lifted the um, scene where he's climbing the side of the uh, sand crawler and they're like throwing stuff down. That's definitely straight out of the Super Star Wars game. So it's it's still influencing like things now, which is cool. Um, LucasArts, they did develop several of their games internally, but they also were still at this time working with external studios, but they would provide art, story direction, music, and sound effects. I've never heard any account about like how easy or difficult they were to work with, but I think the fact that we don't hear people complaining about working with LucasArts probably means they weren't that difficult. Mm. Um, So when it came to work with Sega, they worked on Star Wars Arcade. So if you want to bring Mm. up the first image we have here of the arcade cabinet. And I actually included quite a few because this thing is rare. This is a rare, rare cabinet. Um, and so to see it in the flesh, which I actually can if I do a little 10-minute drive down the street to Galloping Ghost Arcade. Um, You're talking you about can the deluxe see it for one? yourself here. What's
1: that? The deluxe one is the one that's rare because I... I mean, I, I don't know. I remember seeing the arcade game. I never I never played it, but I remember being a kid mm-hmm. and remember knowing there was a Star Wars Sega arcade machine. It might have there been a- are two. And okay, All
0: you're right. thinking of trilogy. So yeah, yeah so trilogy uh, probably spoiler alert. I don't think I mentioned at the beginning. We're actually covering three games on this episode, not just Star Wars Arcade. Honestly, because this episode will be over in the next few minutes <laughs> if we didn't do that. Um, but if you look at this machine, this thing's huge. Like it's uh I don't know what images you have up here now, but you can see like there's the seats are all like custom to it. They have these nice little graphical decals. Um and this was in 1993, so Sega and LucasArts they teamed up to create Star Wars Arcade. It was running on the Sega Model 1 arcade board, and it was jointly developed by Sega AM3 and LucasArts, and the game featured a deluxe two-player cockpit, which if you listened to to our Sega Candy Cabinet podcast, which I think is a must-listen a must listen for uh, people who like arcade machines. Um, this appears to be a modified Sega Megalo 50 machine or Super Megalo machine because I cannot find pictures of the Super Megalo, so I don't know how they compare. But if you want to bring up that image of the Megalo 50, you can definitely see the similarities. Oh, it's yeah. almost like they... It's like they stuck a bunch of a bunch of shit on top of it. And they were like, look, it's Star Wars. But um, <laughs> it's nice. But you can imagine these things are expensive. And um, the game itself, it was presented in a 3D perspective. Oh, and I think we have a video too, right? I have a video yeah. there. Uh, yeah. That is going to just be straight gameplay. So we can have that going while we talk. Um, so basically... Maybe if you want to turn the audio off, too, because yeah. it's going to go a while. Yeah, so um, sure. As you can see, the game, it was presented in a 3D perspective, which is not a first for Star Wars games, since the very first Star Wars arcade game from Atari in 1983 actually used wireframe graphics to simulate the first, game, uh, first film's finale, but I would argue that this is probably the first fully 3D Star Wars flight simulator using solid polygonal graphics, and I mean, it's hard to put yourself in that mindset, but let's say it's 1993, you walk into an arcade, and you see this game after already having seen something like Virtua Racing. Yeah. Do you think this kind of, like, blows Virtua Racing out of the water in terms of graphics?
1: Not only that, immersion, like, there was, like, let's be honest, Virtua Racing is a sick game, It's, it's fun to play, but the way that there's so much background, like, the um, the idea of having the black you know, just space being black and not using as much polygons, I, I think it adds right. more to it. I think that's why these like cockpit shooters, like the one on the the GameCube, for example, the Star Wars one looks really, really good because it's almost all black space in the background. So they could use more <laughs> yeah. uh, graphics on the ships and stuff. And this one, I, it just looks, it looks better than <laughs> Virtual Racing. Um, it almost. Kind of like I could see this being like a, a Star, like a Saturn game, kind of, but like a little bit better. And this is a 93, yeah. for example. So, yeah, kind of ahead of its time. Um, it, I mean, you could even compare it to like uh, Star Fox. It's like a lot more going on here, for sure.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's funny because we're talking about virtual racing. Um, the working title for this game was actually Virtua Star Wars. I don't know if that was ever. <laughs> considered like a possible final title but do you think they should have called it virtual star wars or do you think star wars arcade is probably a better option
1: star wars arcade is fine i'm assuming that lucas arts probably had like didn't want to be rebranded with the branding of sega you know what i mean because if anything it just elevates True. the branding of virtual Fighter or virtual everything they were doing <laughs> so it's like right star wars is now part of sega's brands i don't know maybe i i can see them having you know problem with that but uh, I can imagine I, I would have loved it as a Sega fan, that's because they would just put the Star Wars branding with Sega. That I'm fine with that.
0: You know, then when we talk virtual games, we'd be like, Do you like Virtua Fighter, Virtua <laughs> Hamster, Virtua Star Wars, <laughs> Virtua Sandwich, you know, things yeah, like that. Of course. Um, yeah. Um, as far as the story, the game actually directly lifts the opening crawl from the original film, but and then it like it kicks off with a recreation of the Rebel blockade runner being chased. By Darth Vader, but from there, honestly, like you choose your mission, and then it's Admiral Akbar, you know, the fish faced guy mm. telling plater- players to jump into hyperspace. And right here, it already kind of derails the whole story because Akbar was not in the films until Return of the Jedi. And outside of the third um, stage where you blow up the Death Star, there's nothing here that's really a retelling of Star Wars. You don't see any major characters. It's not even assured that you're Luke. Like, you could be anyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at most, if you lose the game, you see Darth Vader making a fist at you, saying you underestimate the power of the dark side, and then if you win, the uh, Death Star explodes. So, I mean, what do you think the game would have probably done better as being more of a tightly retelling of Star Wars, maybe with a little more variety? Or just like, I don't know, like, if, if you watch the first film... You can, you blast off in the Millennium Falcon, you can fight TIE Fighters. That's one. Number two, you could get, like, I don't know, like, uh, escaping the Death Star. That's stage three. Two. And then stage three would be blowing up the Death Star. Like, there is an opportunity there to tell a loose retelling. But do you think it really matters with a game like this? Nah,
1: because these games are all about the (laughs) spectacle, right? You get there, you see it in the arcade. What? And then you get to do missions from the game. I don't think a lot of right. people go like. Actually, the Star Wars lore did not have this character in this scene when they were kids. You know, like, I get what they're going right. for. Personally, to me, I I like Star Wars like games that like extend the universe. That's the ones that really get me mm. like, wow, that's interesting. Like, they make you see little, like, um, we talked about Rogue One, the whole stealing the plans gives you a new perspective on yeah. that little bit of history. Um, I don't know. There's that new EA game, the Jedi. Uh, what is it called? Fallen Order. Is that what yeah. it's called? Like that kind of stuff. I like that better. But as for retellings, I think for an arcade game, it's fine because it's almost like you're just in a big ride. Like I think of them as at theme park rides because that's how I think Sega kind of sure. saw them. So that's how I feel. absolutely
0: yeah. You and I mean and it, and it fits because yeah I mean I I think they the game actually might have um, faltered if they stuck more with the story. Because as I mentioned, like, you can't really do an X-wing or a Y-wing so much because they only appear at the end of the film. So, like, would they be flying the Millennium Falcon? And then with that in mind, wouldn't you just want to make the whole thing a Millennium Falcon simulator? Yeah. Which is kind of funny because in uh, Disneyland and Disney World, that's their big ride. It's a Millennium Falcon simulator, which I actually flew... Um, with my my dad, my dad and I were the pilots, and it plays a lot like this game because um, the gameplay in this game, just like at the theme park, it's very simple. Um, you take control of an X wing or Y wing fighter, and you can switch perspectives. I prefer first person, first person in this uh, in the arcade setting, just because it, it just works so much better um, taking on Tie fighters. But really, how they operate is very simple. So player one has the flight stick, and they can fire. And then pl- player two um, is the gunner, and then they will do additional shooting. Now, if you're sitting down at the machine on your own, you will fly an X-Wing. If you're sitting down at the machine with a friend, you will fly a Y-Wing, because in the movies, the Y-Wing is a two, uh, two-seater, 2 kind of like the uh, Snowspeeder, where they're, I think, back-to-back. I might be wrong, but... I have a Y-Wing up there that I could actually pull down and look at, but I can't reach it. Um, But I thought that was kind of cool, like staying true to how the ships operate. I also really like um, the different stages. So the first one called Training, it's kind of deceptive because you think when you pick it, oh, I'll get to, this is like training and it's like a free game. But no, this is like a stage you pick. They should have called it something else, but you're basically intercepting TIE fighters in an asteroid field. The second is called Rebel Attack where you take on a Super Star Destroyer, which um, is from Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And then the third is an assault run on the Death Star, which, of course, is from the original Star Wars film. Um, It's two-player mechanics, like I said. There's no two ships. You're both together in one ship. The seats make it very clear, pilot and gunner. And like I said, the controls are simple. It's just like, you know, flight stick. Very easy. Anyone can sit down and play it. Um. The question is, have you ever sat down and played it? I'm gonna guess no, because it's a very rare game.
1: Uh, yeah, you probably guessed correctly. I uh <laughs> haven't played it. It's a, like I said. I think I saw the trilogy one because I think I remember it being mm-hmm. more black, not silver. Yeah. Um. So I've never played this game before, and uh, this is probably the first time I like I've never even played it on an emulator. So like. Oh wow! I haven't played it at all, and I'm just like watching the gameplay, and I'm like, it actually looks pretty good. It, it reminds me a lot of the you know Rogue Squadron and all these new games they're making that are basically the same idea, really. Um, I like the yeah. idea. I'm actually surprised that Sega went and made two different models, like the X-wing and the Y-wing, just for one player and two players. Considering that, like mm-hmm. most of these games were on a on a budget, you know what I mean, trying to get out as soon as possible. So that's Absolutely, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah what yeah, did and I, you and obviously I
1: mean, you played it
0: I've played so and we'll get to the 32x version I have my my cartridge here I actually don't have the box version I always pass it up when I see it because I'm like oh, I own the cartridge but um, I have played the uh, arcade version it definitely uh, it it's extremely fun I think it does still hold up to this day despite the graphics it's like a solid 60 frames per second. Nothing about it really seems like... So I've played the Atari one, and that one is hard to play now. I've played this one. It still stacks up because I can see what's going on. The gameplay objectives are still easy to follow. It's just... It's it's kind of a timeless game in that sense. And I think the same could be said about a lot of the Virtua and uh, Model 1 and 2 games. Like, they look dated, but they're still very accessible, very fun. And that's why we still see stuff like Daytona USA and uh, Virtua Fighter 2 in arcades just like pac-man you know like it's just their their games that people can still sit down and enjoy even if they're not like oh this is a 1993 Sega Lucas Arts collaboration it's a very <laughs> rare machine so that's what makes it worth playing you know like there's none of that going on um, speaking of the collaboration though I, I couldn't find any information as to why Lucas Arts and Sega teamed up for this Um but I can only imagine it's probably because the rights were newly re- uh, reacquired by Lucasfilm. And given that Saga was really the only arcade game developer with the skills and equipment needed to pull off something like Star Wars Arcade, it just it fit. I'd imagine two Virtua Star Wars kind of is what brought Lucas Arts to them or vice versa, because you're seeing stuff like um, virtual racing, you're seeing stuff like Virtua Fighter. And so it shows that these 3D games are ready to be made. They just need like the, uh, you know, the license holders or the, the filmmakers to approve it. I don't know how savvy George Lucas is about video games. I know Steven Spielberg definitely is. Mm, yeah. In fact, if you see Jaws, there's actually a, I believe it's a Sega game. It's a Sega arcade game, like a shark game. Um, like on the dock. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's a Sega one. But um, so I don't know how savvy George Lucas was, but I'd have to imagine he signed off on this, and I'd have to imagine he sat down to play it, and I would love to see the footage of him playing this for the first time. He was probably like, oh. <laughs> you know, something like that.
1: You know, I have a feeling that he is, uh, I mean, something into video games, because like, he's always right. like, say what you want about the guy, he's always about the cutting edge uh, technology and editing and everything, mm-hmm. so like, seems like he really likes technology and what's the future. So definitely think. Oh, absolutely. Like,
0: yeah. Non-linear editing was a big thing for him. Digital editing, digital sound. I mean, he produced one of the first all digital films, uh, attack of the clones. Yeah. Which, you know, like that's pretty big at the time. People were like, no, I will never, I will refuse to see a digital film. And now it's the only thing you can see. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Um, so Star Wars Arcade, it released to America in 1993 and Japan and Europe in 94. According to arcade aficionados, this game is insanely rare. Um, I've read that only a few dozen English versions exist outside of Japan, with one sitting in the Galloping Ghost Arcade in Brookfield, Illinois. Wow. Um, my guess is it was it was a very expensive game to produce and probably ship because these were all coming over from Japan. So you can imagine they're not going to be shipping out like these massive, like hundreds of these massive machines. I'd also imagine they're very expensive. So you're only going to be seeing large arcades, maybe in like LA, Orlando, Chicago, New York, you know, like real big tourist hubs, probably putting them, I don't know, like at entertainment venues. This is not something you would see like at the mom and pop arcade or Chuck E. Cheese. You know, it's just... It's a game you probably saw on cruise ships, you know? <laughs> like, I remember arcade games on cruise ships. Um, so in fact, I believe... Uh, remember that House of the Dead, uh, like, uh, cutesified one where it's like a boy and girl zombie or are in love? Remember that? Yeah,
1: I remember that one. The spinoff. The they started... Got.
0: They were testing... Yeah, they were testing English versions on cruise ships. It was like the only place you could play it in English. I so. feel
1: like... Going on a cruise ship is kind of worth it. Maybe you get sick, but <laughs> at least you get to play some like arcade saving games, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, I I understand why there were probably so few. It's just a shame because so few people have memories of playing this. Um, the game itself was directed by Masah- Masahito Shimizu, whose credits surprisingly include a stall which he was the director for, Mario & Sonic 2016, Hey Pikmin, Spyro the Dragon, where he was a producer, and, oh man, Balan Wonderworld, where he served as a game designer. Um, Seems like you know we only good games. Absolutely. I mean, we've done nearly 75 of these Sega talks, and I feel like we sometimes have come across these games where we're like, who directed this? And it's like someone with a short list of game credits that span decades. And I always wonder like, how do they make a living? Like clearly they're in video games. They must be doing something, but when they really get credited, it's like for five games over a period of like 30 years. It's just I, it makes no sense to me.
1: To me, it's. I like, mean, what do
0: you what do you think of the work of this guy? Like, what ha- do you think that he had a successful career, or do you think this guy it was kind of a downward?
1: I think this guy's the dude that, like, well, definitely downward with Balin, but like, because he got fired most yeah. likely. But um, I, I would say this guy's the dude in the office that, like, oh, we're doing a group group project for six months. The dude's not doing anything, and then all of a sudden he'll turn in one piece of work, and everyone's like. At least we got him to do that, right? And then he got maybe five games done in 15 years compared to like every yeah. other director. They got like four a year. This guy's the, the lazy guy. He's the guy that goes with the flow. That's <laughs> crazy. I
0: I have been talking about video games for close to 10 years and I still don't understand how people in video games make money. Like I know people and they're just like, Oh, I'm an indie game developer and I'm like, "Oh, have you made any games?" No, I've been working on the same one for 30 years. And I'm like, "What are you doing?" have you, like, seen, have you seen that game? I mean, game? I guess they're like doing Uber and stuff, right?
1: I guess. Like, uh, like have you seen the guy that made uh, Owl Boy? They took like 10 years to make that game and it's just like a pixel game like and I'm like, "Yeah. I'm sure it sold well when it came out, but imagine you like spend 10 years of your life creating this game and your your children are like, "I need food, dad." And you're like, "I'm going to release it." <laughs> Only 1,000 people buy it. Well, <laughs> it's like, aw.
0: I think at least Masahito probably had food on the table. But it's yeah. just, it's such a strange career because I know full well we're going to be talking about a stall on a future show. Yeah. Um, and it's just bizarre that, like, this and that are the only games that are really under his belt as director. Or the fact um, that he got a Star the...
1: Wars game. Like, that's a pretty big yeah, license.
0: Yeah. Like, You'd think they would tap like Yu Suzuki or something. Be like, Mr. Lucas, we have the best guy. He's the George Lucas of video games. It's Yu Suzuki. And George would be like, I thought it was the Mario guy. I thought he was the, <laughs> the mother of video games. Um, the The rest of the staff, though, they have a very uh, strong, strong history working on Virtualon, Crazy Taxi, Sega Rally, Last Bronx... Initial D and the Let's Go games. Mm. So, with that in mind, do you do you kind of see any DNA from these games? The virtual in Star Wars arcade or vice versa?
1: The virtual stuff for sure, easily like any virtual yeah. stuff like that screams it. Just the, the way the polygons look, and uh, it just reminds me of like playing when I was looking at the gameplay. It reminded me a little bit of like a mo- a Model One space shooting version of like Virtual Cop in a way. You know, yeah, you get to move around a bit more, but. You could see they were already
0: thinking of uh, bringing light guns and all this other stuff to 3D. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you look at, too, like, you know, a lot of these games, Virtual On, Sega Rally, Initial D, they don't have, like, super crazy quirkiness that stuff like Sonic or Jet Set Radio or even Yakuza would have. It's like Virtual On are giant robots that fight. The game does that well. (laughs) Sega Rally, it's just cars driving on a track. So in this case, it's like Star Wars Arcade. It's not like they took Star Wars and took it somewhere else. No. They they basically put Star Wars on the screen. And I want you to pay attention to Initial D, because that's going to come up again and again as we keep talking about these games. Um, but before we get to the next game, I did want to talk about the music. The music was, of course, created by John Williams, and sound effects were by Ben Burt of Lucasfilm. However, Sega did have a sound team of all stars who brought these iconic sounds to arcades. Uh, the game sound team consisted, and this is where the, these are where the superstars are. So the game sound team consisted of Hiroshi Kawaguchi or hero who worked on space Harrier and afterburner as composer. We also have, and this is probably the only other time we will ever talk about him on the show. Uh, Kazuhiko Nagai, who did the Ghostbusters music. Remember Ghostbusters? Yes. We talked about
1: that. Yes, we heard his yeah. soundtrack too. Yeah.
0: We did, yeah. Um, and he also worked on several Sega arcade ports to the Mega Drive. So his main thing was taking Heroes music and adapting it to the Mega Drive. So right there, you can kind of see his strength is adapting existing music to video games. And then we have Yuichi Ueda who worked on several Model 2 games, including Virtua Fighter 2.1. So, I mean, I, I posed the question, but I think I'm just going to answer it. I think the sound team did succeed. They did a great job lifting these classic sounds and bringing them over to the uh, Model 1 hardware. Um, it's all kept on brand. It all makes sense. I think it's smart that they didn't like put a weird spin on things and you had like rock and roll or surf music. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, like it would just would have been wacky. Um, um, I was going to tell Star you, Wars Arcade. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think that
1: they got like a sound library from like George Lucas? They're like, these are the official sounds of what a, uh, a t- yes. A, yeah. You think so? So you don't think they had to like record it from a VHS tape and hopes- no. No, Okay.
0: <laughs> they They definitely have sound libraries that they share with um, people who have the license. Um, they Lucasfilm also sells libraries that you can buy, but they are not Star Wars sounds. Mm. They are basically Lucasfilm's library of sounds that then they might have picked from and used to make Star Wars sounds. But if you want those Star Wars sounds, you've got to have the license and you got to work with them. I do have to wonder how much of that stuff was like under lock and key. So they weren't just like handing them out, uh, you know, and then Sega would be sitting on them, and then they're like, oh, we're making Sonic 3, let's add the Death Star sound effects, you know, something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah, because, um, you know, they would. I mean, you know, at this time, remember how much they were stealing? They were stealing uh, sounds from Home Alone. Yeah. They were stealing clips from, uh, what was that, that that, that helicopter game? Uh, it's just like they. Golden Axe had no... Conan the
1: Barbarian screams.
0: Right. So there was no shame involved. But I think as soon as Sega was working with an actual Hollywood studio, they were probably like, guys, don't, don't F this up. Don't right? f in front of we them. Wanna, we want to make a few more of these. Yeah. Um, Star Wars Arcade, it was, it was ported to the 32X in 1994, which saw a downgrade in polygon counts and a drop in resolution. The port also suffers slowdown when a lot's going on, something the arcade version... Really didn't have issues with running at 60 frames per second. Uh, the asteroid sequence removed the asteroids, Wow. making it kind of empty. <laughs> the game runs still runs at a pretty solid 30 frames per second. Um, additionally, to make up for the cuts, the game does have a 32x mode, which extends levels and adds more challenges. Also, despite these downgrades, I personally think the game is a very faithful port, and it's known to contribute early to early strong sales of the 32X. It didn't save it, but Whoa. it definitely allowed it to live a little bit longer. Um, the game was ported in America, which means we actually have some English language interviews that shed a rare light on the game of this era. Because, you know, the Japanese, they don't talk about this stuff. They're just like...
1: Yeah, it came out.
0: I only <laughs> I, I only speak to my boss and my wife. That's I it. will not speak about you know? Um so thankfully, we have a Sega 16 interview here with um, Stephen Lachauer, who was a Sega of America programmer, and he sp- spoke about his work on the game. It's pretty... I- I'll read through it here. It's, it's a little long, but I think it's well worth going through. So uh, Sega 16 asked, Star Wars Arcade was completed in a scant four months, even adding the exclusive 32X mode. Wow. How on earth did you and your team manage to pull off such a solid port at so short a time? And Steven said, Chris Warner and I did the majority of the coding on the project. John Branstetter was the producer and kept us provided with pizza, lasagna, and soda for the majority of the project. The, the original game was an arcade machine. Since it was written in 100% assembly language and the ar- the hardware that we were using was vastly different than that of the arcade machine. We figured the quickest approach would be to write a new game from scratch that had the look and feel of the arcade machine. Chris and the Mars development system uh, about the size of a small fridge. So he worked on the 3D engine. Chris never did any 3D work before. So he had a blank slate to start out with. I coded up the Genesis side of things as well as the new Z80 sound driver. Because if you remember, the, the 32X used the Genesis. So they would also have to develop for the Genesis, <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, which sounds like a headache. Um, he said, "I spent a majority of the project not only, not just only a Genesis development system, pretending that I could see 3D graphics on the screen." So he worked on the Genesis side of things. The 3D graphics, which were handled by the uh, 32X developer, was the other side. So it's like these two guys working on parts of a puzzle that then they made that put together. Um, sounds like a nightmare. It does sound like a nightmare. Uh, Sega 16 said, it's considered that the game saved Christmas for Sega in 95 and was one of the best 32X games overall. What did you think of the hardware? And Steven said, Chris and I were really proud of the job we did on Star Wars. It isn't the greatest game in the world and didn't get the best reviews, but we did it in four months on hardware that wasn't finalized until the end of the project. I think Star Wars and the 32X system uh, pretty much sold one to one. So he's saying every time someone bought a 32x, they would buy Star Wars. Uh, my opinion on the hardware? Well, I don't know. I wait. I don't know game programmer on the planet that didn't at one time or another think the hardware could always be better. Um, as an interesting side note, we got notice that halfway through the project, that part as part of a cost-cutting measure, SAG of America was considering cutting the CPU power of the machine in half. We were very happy when they changed their mind about that. <laughs> yeah,
1: Jesus! Imagine the nightmare that would have been.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then Steven goes on. He says after Star Wars shipped, he became the 32X guy at Sega Interactive, and he worked on a ton of other stuff. Um, he went on to work on, I believe, Ratchet and Clank, Oh, Ratchet and Bolt, no, which was a 32X title that was uh, sadly cancelled. He then worked on. Another 32X game that was canceled called Extreme Sports. So, you know, it was kind of a another downward trajectory. Being
1: the 32X um, guy wasn't a good thing after all. <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess not. I mean, he, he... Yeah, it doesn't sound like he had a very good end to his career. Um, and we could end the show here, but as a bonus, I did want to cover two more Star Wars arcade games. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is Star Wars... Trilogy. So if you want to bring up that arcade machine, this is probably the one you remember seeing.
1: Uh, probably. You see this thing? Let me see it. Uh, oh, I see. Maybe it is. I thought it was darker, but maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, it was such a long time ago that it's like hard to remember. Maybe the was. room
0: was... The lights were down. It was like a darker room,
1: maybe. Could be. Could be.
0: <laughs> could be. Um, and if you look at that logo, too, and you can kind of see the Darth Vader behind me, maybe... So this game came out in 1998, which was following the release of the Star Wars trilogy special editions. So they definitely were using that Star Wars trilogy branding. Um, The game was actually marketed as a follow-up to the 1993 Star Wars arcade. So this is a sequel. Um, However, this time players not only fly ships, but they also take part in melee battles from the films. Um, This makes the game not only a next-gen update of the original um, as it runs on the Model 3 arcade board, but also brings in story elements from all three original trilogy films. The game was developed by AM Annex, a studio we will probably only talk about once, and that's now, because they only did we might mention it again, but they only did like three games, which is kind Um, of crazy. Um, AM Annex was actually formed by Tetsuya Mitsuguchi after it was decided to split up the then 100-man AM3. Uh, The majority of AM Annex's staff had worked on Sega Rally Championship and Manx TT Superbike, with their first creation being 1996's Sega Touring Car Championship. Mm -hmm. They also had a hand in Sega Rally 2, and then they were eventually rebranded as AM12, when they developed Star Wars Trilogy Arcade, so okay. if you look up, yeah, it's confusing. But if you look up Star Wars Trilogy Arcade, it is an AM twelve game, which <laughs>
1: they only made which this was,
0: but they only made this as AM twelve, and before that they were AM annex, which is like literally, if you know what an annex is, it's like they were taken and removed to another part of like the office or something from AM three, and then after this. In September 1998, they were again renamed to Sega Software R&D Department 5 in May 1999. And then in 2000, they were spun off as Sega Rosso. So to work for that team probably sucked because you were being moved around. Right. Like they were probably buying company t-shirts. They're like, (laughs) guys, Annex. We're Annex. No, we're AM12. They paid the twelve.
1: If you worked there, it would have been pretty sweet because you get to design a logo every three
0: months. That's pretty cool. That's true. That's true. And I've seen people online talking about this game. They say, oh, it's an AM5 game. No, it's not. It is it is an AM12 game, but AM12 only existed when this game came out. And after that, it was R&D, Department 5, and Sega well, like, What fun. Um, unlike the first game, Trilogy Arcade is a single-player experience with a flight stick and two fire buttons and two event buttons. Ooh. Um, Like the 1993 game, Trilogy consists of three stages. However, this time each stage is based on a scene from each film of the Star Wars trilogy. So you have A New Hope, which is a recreation of the Battle of Yavin, right up to the destruction of the Death Star. Basically taking the finale of the first Star Wars arcade and making it the first stage, which is kind of exciting because they get to rework the graphics, um... And, and kind of show you that, you know, that first game, that was cool and all, but we got two more stages after this. Uh, stage two was Empire Strikes Back. It had the famous Battle of Hoth being depicted with the player assisting in detry- destroying ATATs and invading Echo Base. And then finally, uh, Return of the Jedi sees players riding a speeder bike on Endor, which was actually the Atari Return of the Jedi game, which was a three-quarter perspective speeder bike uh, game and then towards the end you destroy an atst the game has a bonus mo- a bonus stage which is the destruction of the second death star and there are two bonus stages between stages 1 and 2 and 2 and 3 where you fight darth vader and boba fett and you use the flight stick <laughs> as a lightsaber that's um, crazy i
1: don't know why they added that
0: they i mean they pack a lot of shit in so i mean do you think trilogy arcade how do you think it compares to the original? And do you think the game would have been better as like just a beefed up flight sim, or do you like this idea of like variety of play? I
1: mean, I think everyone wants to play with a lightsaber, so they uh, it was a no brainer for Sega where they're like, we have to add the lightsaber duels just to show right. people it. You know, um, personally, to me, I would have just done the the. The the you know the shooting but better because uh, honestly this game actually has really good graphics when it's in that section like when they're in space and stuff like I tell you for the same reason it's in space when you see the little like duels it looks you could tell it really looks its age it looks better than most ninety eight games still but the graphics aren't all the way there compared to the shooting stages especially the the first one when you're in space and you're taking down the the Death Star from uh, New Hope it just looks really really right. good. Still, even today, and we've
0: we, we have the video playing right now. What's what's going on since I can't see it? Oh,
1: I just—it's the first. It's just I—I I, I was showing the duels a little bit. And now I'm showing off the first stage again. Anything you want to show off?
0: Yeah, I just—I was just curious because I—I I mean, I think it's really cool that there's a variety of gameplay, but I also think something is lost because when you look at Star Wars Arcade and the next game we're going to talk about, it really brings in that full-body sensation sort of thing that Sega was known for, where you're sitting down to play not just a video game, but you're being put into the cockpit of an X-Wing. But in this case, it's like you're sitting in front of a machine with a joystick, but it's not emulating anything. It's like you could be doing anything, like riding a speeder bike, using a lightsaber. So I, I... I think they're, the variety is great, but there's also something lost in the immersiveness of the arcade cabinet itself. Mm. Like, the flight stick... To, if the flight stick looked like a lightsaber, that would be cool for the lightsaber parts, but then why would you be flying a ship with a lightsaber? You know, yeah. like, it's... Um, it's weird. Though I... I don't know. I'm like... I I think this game definitely is a great addition, but I really like the next game coming up, and I really liked Star Wars Arcade because of that flight sim sort of feel here. Um, but given Sega never returned to Star Wars, or the original trilogy after this, it's great that they did what they did with such variety. And it, it does make it a really fun arcade game just to revisit because you get so much variety. Um, the staff for the game was actually really beefed up but thanks to the cd quality sound there is no need for original music to be created which actually resulted in a smaller sound team the game has 3 directors though there's kenji sasaki takihiro Oh uboy sorry guys kakizawa and motoshi takabe however only sasaki is notable enough to have his career like covered online Mm. Um, And his work is largely in the Sega Rally and Sega Touring Car franchises, as well as, and remember I told you guys, pay attention, Initial D. Uh, His last credited role at Sega was 2006's Sega Rally. Mm. Nobuhiro Morishita served as the chief designer, with Initial D being his main focus outside of this game. And the most notable team member was actually the project organizer, Tetsuya Mitsugushi, who I'm sure many Sega fans know very well for his work on Sega Rally, Sega Touring Car, Space Channel 5 Res, Child of Eden, and Luminous. Yes. So, now we're up to the second game. Do you think the work of these Sega staffers before and since Star Wars Trilogy Arcade reflect on this game? And can you draw maybe any comparisons?
1: I mean, I I would say that I could see the racing stuff because I mean but it's totally different but it's in a different style you know but um I just mm-hmm. think the arcadeness of it really does draw comparisons but like everything else like I don't really see too much of a comparison considering uh Masaguchi's career I think when he was let right. break loose he was like I like idols I want to do an idol video game I want to do this weird <laughs> shooting games but I mean Res right. technically has a lot it's literally a shooting game, but you're like a cybernetic being instead of a Star Wars license. Exactly. Like, you can make Rez and paint it as a Star Wars game if you really wanted to. Um,
0: for sure. And and I kind of teed you up for that answer yeah. because that's exactly what I was going for, too. I think... I mean, this game is not really a racer, but you're definitely moving forward through a space. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Rez, you're shooting things with the little what is it called, like a retic- ret- retrocule? Yeah. We, we covered it once and I can never say it. Um, and then of course Space Channel 5, it's like an outer space game, obviously very different aesthetics, but if you ask me at the time, you know, like you were from the future, and you're like, hey, this guy, Tetsua, he's gonna make a rail shooter game and he's gonna make an, an outer space dancing game. I'd be like, oh yeah, put him on Star Wars, he sounds great. So, you know, it's it's you can see that the work of these guys do kind of bleed into star wars trilogy just a little bit still i think this game and the previous one we talked about um they stick really well to the the license so it does feel like you're just in the movie which works for it i i don't think this game would have been the success it was if like i don't know like ulala yeah. appeared <laughs> you know it was like idols dancing or or something like that um Moving on to the third and final game of our trilogy of Star Wars games. So we've got Racer, uh, Star Wars Racer Arcade. And let's bring those images up. I think this is a, it's, it's a simple looking cabinet, but I think it's a beautiful cabinet. And if you have ever seen this in the wild, which you probably have at like movie theaters, uh, pizza places, it's the most, uh, prevalent in terms of, You're going to see this one more than any of the other Sega Star Wars games. Um, It's a very popular one for movie theaters because obviously Star Wars was a smash success. This game comes out and they're like, oh, put this in the arcade by the theater. Um, so, So this rounds off our trilogy of Star Wars games. Like I said, Star Wars Racer Arcade. It released in 2000 by Sega Rosso, which, as I mentioned, was what AM Annex eventually became. The game runs on the Sega Hikaru, oh boy Hikaru Arcade Board. And compared to Trilogy Arcade, this game seems smaller, but thanks to fast paced visuals and a unique control scheme, the game manages to stand out um, as one of Sega's best arcade racing games. Players choose from four racers Anakin, Sebulba, Ben Quatroneros, and Gascano. And from four tracks, which is Bontha Tracks, which is the easy track, which is actually the name of Lucasfilm's uh, newsletter at the time, uh, Smuggler's Cove, which is normal, Pixelito Challenge, which is hard, and then the Bunta Classic, which is from the movie Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And all four tracks take place on Tatooine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have the the footage up there, but of course. Uh, Jar Jar appears when the Sega logo does, which is kind of oh, funny. Oh, he does in the beginning? Um, yeah, he, he like shows up and like knocks over the letters or something. Um, I personally think the game shines when it comes to its movie-accurate control schemes, which uses two throttles that move forward and back, making the game feel, in my opinion, like virtual on, but instead of twin flight sticks, you have twin throttles. Um, also, like classic games like Hang On or Outrun, the arcade cabinet itself uh, resembles the Pod Racer. Well, the two player cabinet actually has a second player seat that resembles the rival Sibulba's pod, which is like an orange. Uh, Though, personally, I think that the two player one kind of falters just because the seats themselves are scaled back. So it's not like you're sitting in a pod, you're just sitting in a chair with like decals on the back. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, have you played this one?
1: I mean, isn't this the same one for episode uh, one pod racing that was on Dreamcast? Or is this... No. No, okay, I've never played completely this different. one
0: ever. Okay. Yeah, so this this one, like I said, it's easier. It's still rare, but it's easier to find probably because it's it's a little newer than the others. And also it was just so popular. Um, but yeah, it just... It's fun. It's simple. It's fun. Um... It's very intuitive. There's this big flashing button in the front that lets you boost. I mean, I, I have no complaints. I think it's a very strong, solid game. Um, does it stack up to like Sega's other classic body sensation machines? I would say yes. I think at the time there were very few like 3D Sega games that went to this level of having the controls and like the cabinet itself match what's on screen. You know, it may be not up there with Hang On and Outrun, in terms of just like, you know, the impact on the industry. But it's it's a very fun kind of throwback to those days. But in 3D graphics, um, with the knowledge that the game is only on Tatooine, do you think it would have benefited more from like multiple planets?
1: Yeah, oh, kind
0: like, uh, of like F-, F Zero. Of course, you know?
1: of course. But like, I always yeah. wondered if like the whole pod racing scene was just added to the movie to like make racing games out of it like oh we can make it inverse and then but like I feel like if they did do that they would want to extend it more like just tattooing four players you know they they kind of like played it safe with the lore here they could have
0: just done like Obi-Wan has a ship too why not I don't know it's a video game <laughs> um, right yeah I mean there are a ton of pod racers there's like a, a dozen of them or something and the fact that only four are, play are playable here is a little bit of a shame, but when you consider at most you're racing against one other player, mm. it's not like this was Daytona where there were like 10 of them. Yeah. you know, So it made sense to scale it back. Um, if you see the movie, outside of Anakin and Sebulba, the racers aren't that iconic. Um, so the ones they did pick, I think at the time, were well known, well known enough because Gascano actually had an action figure and then Ben Quadroneros, he's the guy who gets stuck at the starting line, and then his ship <laughs> blows up. So you know, like, oh, cool. They're a little more recognizable. Yeah, they yeah had like, something. Who happened. would pick him? I want to pick the guy whose ship blows up. Um, I did not put it in the notes, but if you notice, this game's called Star Wars Racer Arcade, and then you mentioned Star Wars Episode One Racer, uh, the home console game. Why isn't it called Pod Racer? And the reason for that is, is actually Ubisoft in 1997 released a game called Pod, um, which was a racing game, Pod Planet of Death. And from all the accounts I've, I've heard that they threatened to sue if they called it Pod Racer because they thought it would be a like confusing to consumers and they would be like, oh, I, I really want to play that Pod Ubisoft racing game. And it looks like Lucas Films, you know, Lucas is releasing one with sec- like, it's. Stupid. I don't know why they. It's stupid because, because like pod racing.
1: Yeah, it's like it's tied with the Star Wars brand. It's not like people are going to go like, I want any racing game that has pod in it. It's like what? <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> it's stupid. And to be honest, pod was kind of shitty, wasn't it? And I don't know. Yeah, I'm looking it? at gameplay well,
1: of it. and It looks really it doesn't look very. Uh entertaining to be honest with you
0: but uh no no so definitely the lesser game was stepping on the feet of the other one um as you mentioned you know there does exist a console pod racing game called episode one racer uh this was developed solely by lucas arts for home consoles in 1999 and initially released on the n64 there is a dreamcast port that exists and i think it's well worth covering on a future sega talk so I'm gonna shelve that so we don't talk about it too much, um, but you you like that you played that one
1: though. Yeah, correct? I did play that one growing up. I also played the Jedi Battle game that came out uh, during the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, during the Dreamcast time when it came out, it was like the reengaging of the Star Wars of uh, like it, mm-hmm. Star Wars the original trilogy. Like regardless of what your opinion about the the game, the movies are or whatever. The fan base was yeah. at an all-time hype level. Was pretty insane back then. Mm-hmm. Like everyone was talking about the movies. Everyone was camping now. You always knew someone that was camping now to watch a movie. Um. So obviously I would right. play the games yeah. because my friends liked the movies and the game. So we played the games.
0: <laughs> so yeah. And there were a lot of games at that time because there was Star Wars uh, Episode One Racer, like you mentioned. There was Jedi Power Battles, which was actually not that bad. It was like a 3D. Um, side scrolling beat em up basically yeah
1: but like it's a little ganky and stuff but it was pretty sick being able to play as Jedi like that and like being able to like just like block all the shooting like they do in the movies
0: right and then there was a third one on the dreamcast which was Star Wars Demolition mm-hmm. which was a like reskin of Demolition Racer mm-hmm. and it was so wacky yeah. it was so fun i love that game like it's like i forgot the specifics but it was like what if Jawas took those um, Imperial robots, uh, droids from um, Empire Strikes Back and like hacked them and then fought with them. It was just like they took Star Wars, threw it in a blender, and then they were like, everyone fights. And it's just, um, I, I honestly think even though we're wrapping up the show now, I do want to return to Star Wars in the future. I think we definitely could get Star Wars Sega CD games and Star Wars Dreamcast games as like their own episodes because there's so much to talk about, um, just as there was here. But now that Lucasfilm is owned by Disney, the world of Star Wars video games is a little bit more complicated. There was an EA exclusivity deal that just recently came to an end, and now Lucasfilm Games, which is the new video game branch of the company that no longer does in-house development, but just handles the IP, um, deals with a variety of studios, but not Sega. So, George, do you think Sega has a future with Star Wars and what would you like to see Sega and Lucasfilm games do together?
1: Uh, I'm going to say definitely probably not because I feel like Sega as a company is also trying to push away from, uh, I guess, uh, they're trying to push away from licensed games for what I've been noticing. They Mm -hmm. have some licenses, but it's more rarer than it is. Like Warhammer is a license they have that they're using right now. Um, What's another license they use? I guess Hatsumiku technically, but they've also been kind of, like, pushing back on that before right. they were doing once a year. Um, so I feel like, overall, Sega's down, and I could see them maybe wanting to do something new with it, but, like, how many people are going to be bidding on a Star Wars, and is it really, at, you know, like, they need to do a new Sonic game that's has to be popping for the new people. <laughs> right. So to me, and, and right. now the Yakuza team is, like, they're on the grind, where, like, Judgment sold a million copies. That's pretty crazy considering that, like, we used we used to talk about the main series of Yakuza and it was like, oh, they sold 600,000. Wow, that was really good. Now it's like the side game is selling a million.
0: I I agree. I, I don't think the home console need is there anymore. I don't think the arcade presence is there anymore, um, especially with the Western side of things where Sega Amusements is now more like doing Chinese-developed Transformer games, you know, things like that. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that in recent history, Sega has done Marvel games and Alien games, and now Disney owns both of those. Um, I also think it's probably the most likely thing to ever happen with Sega and Star Wars, I think, would be the possibility of farming out these three games to a studio that would do a home console port of all three of them. And it would be like the Sega, the star Wars arcade, you know, collection, because they're doing a lot of that now. And so I could see Sega maybe saying like, yeah, you can you take our, our, you know, source files or whatever and make a home console port. We'll make a little money. Disney makes a little money. Everyone's happy. Um, Just because I think these are great games, they're important games, and they're games that have really not seen, you know, release. Um, I kind of remember M2 talking about how they kind of wanted to port Star Wars Arcade. Oh, yeah. But I'm sure... Because there's a big thing with Japanese developers, too, and, and even Japanese animators and filmmakers, where... I think they jump at the t- the chance to do Star Wars stuff because if you saw there's a trailer that just went out for Star Wars Visions, which is an anime like um, collaboration with Lucasfilm, where you have like production, IG, and um, a lot of those big name anime studios, and all of these like old Japanese dudes are like, "Oh, I'm so happy to work on Star Wars." So, I mean, I. Th- I mean, there's a reason why they did a Star Wars convention in Japan at one point, because there is a fan base there. Um, It's maybe not that sizable, but it's there. So, we'll see. Um, Speaking of Star Wars in Japan, I did want to close things out with this video. Um, It's Uh a George Lucas Panasonic commercial, Uh which actually ends with the new Sega Bits slogan.
1: Oh, okay. So,
0: if you want to... Fire this gem up.
1: I'll play it. <laughs> the music?
0: I'll just keep it going. That's it? I dream of visions which are God, he used to be skinny. What happened? 現実の形にしてきた。Oh <laughs> my god, the smile. <laughs> Here we go. What? New dreams and new friends. この道は Oh my god, that's beautiful. Panasonic. Always new dreams wonderful friends. Panatonic. いつも新しい夢素晴らしい仲間。this is the last Panasonic. time.
1: It's some This is the last time that What do you think of that? This is the last time Panasonic was relevant, right? Um, ah, <laughs> it's a very strange commercial. What do you how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like having Panasonic items in your house?
0: It makes yes. I <laughs> It's my new favorite video. I love the slogan Always New Dreams, Wonderful Friends. Um, oh, I tweeted it out, and people seem to like it. Sega bits, mm. always new dreams, wonderful friends. So I've uh, the copyright's already there. Someone suggested though that it's the best Sega-related news source that eats expired lifesavers.
1: That's pretty good.
0: Um, <laughs> I saw that. I mean, that's not bad either. I could, if I ate expired lifesavers, I'm sure I would have new dreams and make wonderful friends, but only in those dreams. Um. Yeah. So, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts on our Star Wars arcade discussion before I jump into the Patreon memories?
1: No, I think we covered three different video games. Um, and that's the only Star Wars. I mean, this is the only ones by uh, Sega, right?
0: Like Sega themselves. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. If we if we cover Star Wars again, it's going to be third party games that were ported to the Sega CD and. The Dreamcast, and I forgot to mention the Master System has a port of the game that appeared on the NES. So, you know, it's like there's not much out there. This is the only time Sega really worked on Star Wars games. So, you know, the the next best thing we'd cover is maybe uh, Star Trek Strategic Operations Command. Ooh. But like how exciting that is one's that? That was a banger.
1: Kind of I remember that one. Everyone talked about that one. <laughs> <laughs> it,
0: it was in the Smithsonian, so it, it, it did something, right? That's true. Um, So, as mentioned, if you support us on Patreon at any level, you can have your memories read at the end of the show. Um, Also, if you support us at higher levels, you get the show early. You also can tell us what to cover on future shows. This one was a pick of mine, and I'm looking forward to seeing what our supporters have to say. So we have Daniel Andres, who never lets me down. He always has something to say. He said, oh, hey. Oh, this, is, this one is a cool one. Star Wars Arcade, yeah. <laughs> Always new dreams, wonderful friends. <laughs> I believe that I first saw slash played this game sometime back in either late 2010 or early 2011 when I was hanging out with an old friend of mine. Her and I were at either a Dave & Buster's or some sort of restaurant arcade mashup facade when I first saw the arcade game. After that, it did keep popping, popping up from time and time again in my life. As I kept seeing it at various arcades that I visited throughout my life, eventually sometime in either 2016 or 2017, I finally grabbed myself a physical copy of it for my 32X. I still have yet to play through the whole game, but it is a really cool and unique title from Sega, whether you're playing it at the arcade or from home. And then we have Nicholas Schaefer finishing things off for us, saying, So happy you are covering these arcades. My uncle was a manager at Boomtown. And we would go once a year to get unlimited tokens, mini-golf and laser tag. But I always spent the whole weekend playing Star Wars Trilogy Arcade. This game was amazing from the trench run to Hoth to then fighting alongside the Ewoks and Endor. This game hit some of my most hyped moments of Star Wars uh, as a franchise that had a big effect on me. Knowing my favorite game company was behind it was mind-blowing. And then the Pod Racer came out and I have to say this cabinet is the best part of the prequels. I have few bucket list things in my life, and owning Star Wars Trilogy Arcade is one of them. Well, guess what, Nicholas? You are going home with a Star Wars Trilogy arcade machine. It's being shipped to your house. No, it's (laughs) not. Sorry, sorry. sorry. You have to back us at the $10,000 level for us to do that lift for you. (laughs) But uh, that'll do it. So, you know, um, may the Force be with you. And also with you, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. George, what are we covering next time, or is it a surprise?
1: I'll keep it as a surprise. I still have to talk about it with the Patreon uh, backers, so... But it might be something to do with Panzer Dragoon. It might be to do with something else, but we'll see when the time comes. We'll catch you guys on the next episode of Sega Talk. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm. Bye.
0: Bye. You know if your, if your pants fall down, your pants are drag in, pants are dragging.
1: Is, uh, is that your Indian joke? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>